0: Greetings to you in Jesus' name, the one who Paul wrote to the Philippians that even though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a man, and being found in fashion as of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. of Things in heaven, things in earth and things under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The passage we were thinking about this morning in our devotional, thank you Jeremy for reminding us of that, talks about how that Jesus for the joy that was set before him endured the cross had to think of that passage repeatedly in our Sunday school lesson where it talks about the things that God might call his people to go through. But there's a joy beyond and uh, it makes it uh, worthwhile. Like the song says, it will be worth it all when we see Christ. I invite your attention for a sermon this morning to Acts chapter 3 and 4. Jesus had promised the apostles that um, they, will be, they will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon them. And ye shall be witnesses, he told them, unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so this is this is unfolding now here, that they are now becoming witnesses uh, of Jesus unto me, he said. After Jesus' resurrection, the disciples asked him, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Seemingly the question was based on the idea that Jesus would make something great of the Jewish nation throwing off the weight of the Roman government. They had been been convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. They were convinced of that. It seems like they just didn't quite know what that meant. They were uninformed or misinformed perhaps by their own ignorance. They had been convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised anointed one that was to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. And not only had he proved himself a remarkable teacher, but after that unhandy interruption of having been killed, he rose again. It seems that that's the perspective they had. And there were some things that had come together in their minds after the resurrection. But they were still anticipating an earthly kingdom. But from my observation. Is that the gift of the Holy Spirit. Changed all their expectations. Jesus had promised them. That when he comes, the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. He said that he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I said unto you. And so, now that the Holy Spirit is coming, these things are coming together in their minds. I appreciated that discussion in Sunday school about this very idea. Um, Do we have all knowledge? No, but God guides us towards that. As we walk that way, he reveals more and more to us. And the suggestion was given that perhaps in the same vein of Joseph Addison's song where it says that eternity is too short to utter all God's praise. Perhaps eternity is too short to know all about him. And that while the years of eternity roll as we sing, we will have an ongoing discovery of the character and of the nature of God. And I hope that's so. But there's a few things that I wouldn't mind knowing right away. But we'll (laughs) we'll let that go. So the last time I preached, we looked at Acts 2, the day of Pentecost and the birth of the church. And that God's Spirit is teaching And guiding and bringing Jesus' words to their mind is so evident in Peter's sermon. Peter connects the dots with the Old Testament prophecies and what was happening right there. He connects the Psalms with the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. The scriptures just flow out of his mouth, out across the audience. And they respond to the prick in their heart, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the first disciples of the disciples are commanded to repent and to be baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sins. And then then it says that those who gladly received the word were baptized. Those who gladly received Peter's message were baptized. And that day there was 3,000 people numbered with the disciples. And they steadfastly continue with the disciples. And they live in fellowship and community, sharing their goods and possessions with each other as each had need. So Think now of the imagery in Daniel chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar saw that big statue and Daniel told him that that represents four kingdoms, four historical kingdoms. That In, in, in that setting, it was future, and from our perspective, they're historical. Four kingdoms that would rule the world. And in the time of the fourth king, there would be a stone that was hewn out of the mountain without hands, and it would come and it would hit that big organization of earthly kingdoms, and they would just shatter and fall to the dust, fall to the ground and become dust and be blown away like chaff on the summer wind. So think of that imagery. Imagery. I can't say that word for some reason. Think of that imagery. The stone had just hit. The kingdoms of the world and they have fallen. I'm talking about here in Pentecost. They have now fallen and they're being blown away like chaff in the summer wind. And the stone that is the kingdom of God is now beginning to grow. (coughs) Jesus had promised them that they will be witnesses. And in the next section of the story we will look at how the apostles witness of the resurrection confronts the Jewish religious leaders. The, orde- the ordeal began by an act of mercy. Peter and John went up to the temple at the afternoon prayer, three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour. Some of this, some of the, I, I want to read, I want to uh, kind of go over uh, chapter three and chapter four. And I'm not going to read all of it. Some of you are just going to have to find in, in your text and just look at it as I'm teaching you about it. Um, some of it I will read. So um, just follow along in, in your text here as, as, it, uh, as you can. So Peter and John were going up to the temple at the, at the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon. It was the hour of prayer. They met a man who'd been lame since his birth. And he'd been brought there daily to ask alms of the worshipers going to the temple. And Peter's response to when he was asked for an alms Is silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now imagine this lame man's surprise when suddenly he feels different than he ever had before. Vitality and healing are surging through his body, and his legs grow taut and strong. He leaps up, barely trusting the strength that he's feeling, and as he, as he becomes more sure of himself, he runs and he leaps and he's shouting for joy, praising God, praising, to the, praising the one in whose name he'd been healed. And this causes quite a stir. And there was soon a crowd of awestruck people uh, gathered around him. And Peter addresses them by deferring the glory to God. When Peter saw it, he answered and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Why look ye so steadfastly on us, as though by our own power we had made this man to walk? So he defers the glory to God. And so let's read uh, verses 11 to uh, 26. And the lame man which was healed held Peter and John. And all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power of holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom he delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given, this, has, hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Oh now, brethren, I want that through ignorance... You did it, as also did your rulers. But those things which God hath before showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive unto the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which shall not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So he made sure that they understood that what happened was done by the power of God. He connected back to the patriarchs, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he made sure that He reminded them of who was responsible for Jesus' death. He blames them for killing the prince of life. He delivered him up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. You know how that was, how that the Jewish mob insisted that Pilate go against his better knowledge. He had wanted, Pilate had wanted to let him go, but he kowtowed to the angry mob beneath him. It says, "Ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and ye killed the Prince of Life. He reminds them that they had wanted that seditious, insurrectionist murderer, Barabbas, to be released and Jesus crucified. But what happens? What happens when the Prince of Life Think of that title, the Prince of Life. What happens when the Prince of Life is killed? Well, like Peter said in his Sermon at Pentecost, it's not possible that he could be holden of the grave. So he asserts Jesus' resurrection and that it was witnessed by him and John. So I'd like to remind you again of what is of what is a witness. A witness is someone who has knowledge by having seen or experienced. He has personal knowledge by having seen or experienced. Peter is saying that he has firsthand knowledge of Jesus' resurrection and it's by faith in Jesus' name that this man was made whole. And we talked a little bit about uh, the expression in Jesus' name in our Sunday school, but, but not a lot. What, what, what's this mean? What is in a name? What is, what's this mean in Jesus' name? We talked about how that it's, um, you're doing it uh, not just as something you say at the end of a prayer that's supposed to validate everything. That's, that's not the point here. It's not the sequence of sounds that's so powerful when we think about doing something in Jesus' name. See, the sounds vary across languages, so it's not the sequence of sounds, the J and the long E and so on. The idea is is that it's faith in the essence of who Jesus is. It's faith in his character. It's faith in his person, in who he is. That's what it means when he was healed by faith in Jesus' name. He was healed by him understanding what Jesus was about, what Jesus was doing on the earth. Last Sunday in our Sunday school, we had talked about um, can someone who can someone come against God's people. With a clear conscience? It's kind of a hard question to answer. But Peter tells these people that they killed Jesus because of their ignorance, because they did not know what they were doing. Maybe they thought they were doing God a favor. Like John said, In chapter 16, or Jesus said in John 16, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. These things they will do unto you because they have not known the father nor me. So ignorance does to some extent leave these people off the hook. It doesn't seem like they were malevolent. It seems like they were merely ignorant. He tells them that Jesus would have to suffer to fulfill the prophecies. And then he tells them to repent and be converted. To repent means to think differently about. It means to turn around. To be converted means to turn towards. So repent and be converted, every one of you. He says... And then he refers to Moses' prophecy. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord God, the Lord thy God, will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, out of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. And it seems to me that that would be on the mind of every Jew throughout the ages, and it would be on the mind of, of every honest Jew today yet. Who is this prophet? We're gonna wanna listen to him when he comes. And Peter is telling them that Jesus is that prophet. And then he reminds them that God had given them the privilege of having been children, the children of the covenant which God had made with their fathers. And how that with that blessing, there was an awesome responsibility to enter into the covenant And then to break it was to bring damnation. It was to bring rejection. To enter into that covenant and then for them to break it was to bring rejection. And I'd like to remind us that we have been blessed, I think, with an even greater blessing than the children of Israel. Because we have been beneficiaries of an even better covenant than them than they were given the privilege to be a part of. And so there's a responsibility that we have when we think of the better covenant. And it's a higher responsibility, and I say the the stakes of rejecting that covenant are higher as well. Hebrews 2 Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, that's a reference to the Old Testament covenant. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by our Lord and was confirmed unto us By them that heard it, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. So you and I, having been recipients, having entered into by faith, through repentance, into this better covenant, have, let's say the stakes are higher for us than they were for them. So let's move on into chapter 4. It says Peter and John were talking to the people. The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. It says they were grieved. Now, um, I was reminded of a story that I heard about. uh, The fellow that married William Peachy's niece, Lorraine Friesen. William, do you remember that story at their wedding? They, they, they told the story about Ron Yoder who, who married William's niece. And there was a dog or a cow or something was after this fellow. I don't, I don't remember what was after him, but he went up in a tree to get away from this creature that was chasing him. And somebody asked him if he was scared. Well, he said he was concerned. Maybe that's a little bit how this is here. It's it's kind of understated. The Sadducees were grieved, right? Well, I guess they were grieved all right. I think um, there'd be a... There's a lot of translations have it, a lot stronger terms. They were greatly disturbed. Might be how we think about it. And so so they arrested them. The Sadducees were the priestly class, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. You remember the story about how that they had come to Jesus with a question about this lady that had five husbands and in the resurrection whose wife she'd be and so they were sure they had Jesus uh, in, in a corner with their question and Jesus diffused the situation so well you do err not knowing the scriptures so these were the Sadducees they didn't believe in the resurrection And they, were now, they now had the, um, Peter and John captured because of what had happened here in the beginning of chapter 3. It says that in spite of Peter and John's arrest, the number of believers has now increased around 5,000 men. That's 2,000 people since Pentecost. I'd be really curious how long a time. In the text, it doesn't really give us any indication. It seems like it's right shortly afterward, but I don't know for sure. 2,000 people have become converted, have repented of their sins and become converted since Pentecost. Uh, But but at any rate, the next morning after uh, Peter and John's capture, the rulers and the scribes and the elders are come together, and it says that Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander... Or um, with them now Annas the high priest and Caiaphas you remember those characters from the time of Jesus trial John I'm not sure who he is one source I read thought that he might have been Annas' son who replaced as high priest but that was just kind of a guess and Alexander I couldn't find anything about him but anyway he's Peter and John are standing before this group of who's who in the Jewish nation. These are the top guys. These are the powerful, educated leaders. And they even have the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, under their thumb. And they're demanding, by what power or by what means have you done this? And Peter's answer is that they have done it in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, it's this idea of the name. But I also want to remind you that Jesus Christ, that Christ is not Jesus' last name. When Jesus is referred to as Christ, it's talking about how that Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. And once again, he blames them for crucifying the anointed one. And he testifies of the resurrection. That it's by the power of the anointed resurrected Jesus that did it in the name of Jesus. This was the stone, he said in verse 11, which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. He's citing Psalm 118 the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous. In our eyes. And Peter's and John's argument for Jesus was so strong that the rulers couldn't say anything about it. They were unlearned and ignorant men. They were not Sadducees, they were not Pharisees, they weren't big theologians. But it was obvious that they had been with Jesus. They realized that they were some of Jesus' disciples. So here they were. Is these unlearned and ignorant men. These were the men that had forsaken him in his trial. Peter and John followed him to a certain extent. Peter was in the courtyard, but while he was there, he denied them. Um, I guess there's, there's, the, uh, there's indication that John was at the crucifixion site. But they had, they basically just forsook him and fled. And this was these characters that were now standing here in front of this council of big powerful religious leaders and they were bold. They had been changed from the shrinking cowards who had denied and forsaken him to proclaiming boldly that Jesus was the Christ. They were claiming that Jesus was the anointed one, that he was raised from the dead, that he was the one who fulfilled the prophecies of the coming Messiah. Here were these men that were so different from what they used to be. And here were the men, here was the man that these men had healed in the name of the one that Pilate had crucified. They didn't know what to do about it. They were floored. But this was the power. This was the dunamis, if you please, that they had received at Pentecost. So this is what the high priests and the rulers were confronted with, and they didn't know what to make of it. And so they held a private council, and they decided that Peter and John uh, should be prohibited from speaking at all or teaching in Jesus' name. Pretty typical of a tyrannical government, isn't it? One of the first things that has to be controlled is how people express themselves. And any speech that is thought to challenge the powers that be is outlawed. But Peter and John's immortal response whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So they were faithful witnesses. They had seen, they had heard, they had personal knowledge of, and they were speaking it. The Spirit of God, instead of being these confused and jumbled up and frightened men, the Spirit of God is now in their hearts reminding them of Jesus' teaching, of illuminating the Old Testament Scripture in their minds. So all these Old Testament Scriptures, the things that were happening right now, the things that uh, were surrounding uh, the death and the resurrection of Christ and of the Holy Spirit uh, coming at Pentecost, these were all coming together and making sense to them. And so these fellows That had crucified Jesus. We're not intimidating to them. Think about that. Here's here's the group of people. That had brought the accusation against Christ. That. Pilate bowed to. And crucified Jesus. You're Jesus follower. But after that. Condemnation. And after his execution. The one that you are following. Is raised from the dead. Think about how strengthening and how emboldening that that would be if you were standing against the very men that brought the accusation against Christ. You can't defeat this man. Talk about being bold. So their response was basically, you figure out whether we should obey your command or not. You're responsible for the God for the decisions that For the laws that you make. We are responsible to God to obey him. And so that's that. That was kind of their attitude. What had Jesus promised them? That you shall be witnesses. And so they were let go. And they went back to the believers. Verse 23 of chapter 4. And being let go, they went back to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which, had made, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine mean things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel had determined beforehand to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. And so they comfort themselves by prayer and by rehearsing scripture and they look at Psalm 2. And that's why I'd ask Kinley to read that psalm this morning. Why do the heathen rage? I don't know why the heathen rage. But it was by the heathen raging that the sacrifice for sins was offered. It was by the heathen raging that the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled. What an astounding example of the sovereignty of God. Here was Herod and Pilate. It says the Gentiles, probably referring to the Roman soldiers. And the children of Israel colluding together. The heathen were raging. But they were accomplishing God's will. But I want you to take note of this group of people. It says that it was Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles. And likely that was the soldiers. Uh, They were likely uh, of the barbarians and and the um, uh, perhaps uh, Germanic peoples. They had a lot of um, mercenaries. So the Gentiles probably the soldiers, and the people of Israel were gathered together. What kind of a union is this? It's the nation of Israel, it's the people of Israel, and the powers, the, the, the Roman powers, colluded together and condemned our Lord. What kind of a union was this? It reminds me it reminds me of, of Revelation 17. And there came out one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon scarlet "...sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, and having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman, drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus." And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Think about how that woman is characterized. And think about how the church is depicted as a bride in white linen. This whore is dressed in purple and red. Throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are said to go whoring away from God when they turn to other gods. It's my understanding that the great war, the great it's my understanding that the great horse spoken of here in Revelation 17 is the church as she has fallen away from God, and now she's in bed with the kings of the earth. And this unholy alliance of a fallen church and the power of the state will fall under God's wrath. and the unholy alliance that we see here in our text is a predecessor of that abominable relationship. This predecessor of the unholy alliance between a fallen church and the power of government. And we see that here in our text. Listen to how they positioned themselves against Christ. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus." These people, if you could say, they're, they're like the antichrist of their day. They were anti-Christ. And yes, if you're wondering, I think that the antichrist spoken of in Revelation and throughout the New Testament given to John, throughout the New Testament and the Revelation given to John, is, is something of this sort. I think it's something of a unholy and illegitimate matrimony of a fallen church and the power of the state. And they are standing against our Lord and against his church since its birth. But the heathen raging will accomplish God's power. Now I'd like to follow the story of the apostles' run ins with the religious authority into chapter five, and Lord willing it will come back and, and look at some of the part of um, or the latter part of chapter four and and the four part of chapter five, perhaps in the next sermon. But for now I'd like to skip ahead and, and continue the story of how the apostles related to the religious leadership. The apostles were rather dismissive of the command not to teach or preach in Jesus' name. Well, you're responsible for your laws. We're responsible to obey God. That's their attitude. And the healing of this blind man, of this lame man, was just the beginning of this kind of healings. Uh, reading in verses 12 to 16 of Acts chapter 5. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and of the rest durst no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them, and the believers were more added to the church, multitudes both of men and women. So that's multitudes more than the 5,000 to this point, or to the point in chapter 4. Now here's, here's more evidence of the power of the Spirit, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets, and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And there came all. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem bringing sick folks and them that were vexed with unclean spirits and they healed and they were healed every one. So the high priest and those with him, now these fellows were the Sadducees, they threw them in prison this time. They didn't just talk to them and tell them not to say anything. But now they threw him in prison. But an angel released them that night and told them to go preach in the temple again. So the next morning, Peter and John were back in the temple. And the council wasn't sure what to make out of this. Didn't we command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Acts 5, verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered them and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, didn't God put secular authorities in place? didn't he didn't god put secular authorities in place for the establishment of order and for the punishment of evil and to praise the ones that do well he sure did but there is an unholy alliance that's made between a fallen church and the powers of government that we need to be very much on the alert for. So let the world cloud an issue with supposedly good morals. Even atheistic countries put forth immorality based on What they say is for the good of the nation and for the good of the people. The heart of church let the heart of church cloud up the water with good intentions and scriptural quotations. The disciple of Christ has one master, and it is him that we obey. And by the way, here is a teaching that is overlooked. It's perhaps one of the most basic foundational doctrines about the Holy Spirit. And it's probably the most overlooked. Verse 32, chapter 5. We are His witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit. I told you how that the Holy Spirit enabled them to understand and It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that they were standing before the council and giving evidence to what was going on. So the Holy Spirit was giving witness to what was happening. We are his witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Think about that. One of the most basic foundational doctrines of the Holy Spirit is that it is given to those who obey God. May God give us grace that we, like them, could be faithful witnesses. Of the resurrection of Jesus. That we could walk in newness of life as Paul says. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. And be a living testament to the fact that we have been with Jesus. May God give us grace. That we would be bold in our representation of the gospel. Serving only one master. Heedless. To any command to the contrary. Let's kneel for prayer.